Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourself up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 to 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money from the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35,000 of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisoners in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March what? Who cares? Marching has never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position 
to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he has he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind, make, up, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. Thank you. 
And today on It's My House, uh topic uh we're sort of piggyback or leveraging ourselves going deeper from yesterday's topic. Today's topic is the democide politicide distinction. Once again, the topic for today is the democide politicide distinction. Live uh, screen number is uh, 619-768-2945. Democide, D-E-M-O-C-I-D-E, democide. Some people might be asking, what is democide? We're going to go into that in a moment. And what is politicide? P-O-L-I, I mean, P-O-L-T-I-C-I-D-E. Uh, and once again, the title of today's podcast, The Democide Politicide Distinction. All right. So let's start off with democide. What is democide? And the republic is or death by government has killed 290 million people on record. Look it up. Go look it up. In the 20th century, government murdered four times as many people as were killed in all the international and domestic wars combined. USSR, 61,911,000 people killed. Hitler's Germany, nearly 21 million people killed. Japan's imperialism, nearly 6 million people killed. Western colonization, killed over 50 million people. Pol Pot's Cambodia, funded by the U.S. government, 2 million people killed. China's Communist Party, as many as 76 million people killed between 1949 and 1987. And the list goes on and on. Demand to know why the Department of Homeland Security bought more than 1.6 billion hollow-point bullets. How many more people does government have to kill? Enough. Enough. Demand an end to citizen disarmament. As an American. As an American citizen. As a patriot. For your children. Enough of the people laying down and letting government kill them in mass after disarming them as they've done throughout history over and over again. Now is the time. It's time. It's time to realize that when the government takes your guns, people die. It's time to realize the biggest threat to you and your family is government. It's time to recognize government is the greatest killer of all time. Demand they show you the word hunting in the Second Amendment. Demand our politicians uphold the Constitution and Bill of Rights as they swore to when they took office. It's time for our leaders to read the Constitution. It's time for our leaders to obey the Constitution. The Constitution. The Constitution. Because a well-regulated militia with 10-round magazines wouldn't last very long. So now you know the most dangerous thing to you and your family in the world is government. Because mass murderers agree, gun control works. All right. Uh, we're going to read 
uh, in a few minutes uh, so we can get a clear understanding of that word democide. But it's global, and it's been around for a long time. The next thing we're going to talk about, I mean, we'll play a clip about is politicide and necropolitics. Necropolitics is the use of social and political power to dictate how some people may live and how some must die. Achille Bem, author of On the Post-Colony, was the first scholar to explore the term in depth in his article of the same name. Necropolitics is often discussed with biopower, the Falcaldian term for the use of social and political power to control people's lives. Bem was clear that necropolitics is more than a right to kill Falcal's droit de glaive but also the right to expose other people, including a country's own citizens, to death. His view of necropolitics also included the right to impose social or civil death, the right to enslave others, and other forms of political violence. Necropolitics is a theory of the walking dead, namely a way of analyzing how contemporary forms of subjugation of life to the power of death forces somebodies to remain in different states of being located between life and death. Bem uses the examples of slavery, apartheid, the colonization of Palestine and the figure of the suicide bomber to show how different forms of necropower over the body, statist, racialized, a state of exception, urgency, martyrdom, reduce people to precarious conditions of life. Jasper Puer coined the term queer necropolitics to analyze the post-9-11 queer outrage regarding gay bashing and simultaneous queer complicity with Islamophobia. Many scholars use Puer's queer necropolitics in conjunction with Judith Butler's concept of a grievable life. Queer necropolitics is the subject of an anthology from Routledge. Okay, like I said, in a few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to read, I'll be reading it, um, the definition of democide, politicide, uh, and necropolitics. Now, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to play a piece from the film um, Mugabe and the White African. A lot of people talk about, well, in this country, white supremacy. But in many parts of the world, there's no such thing as white supremacy. Take a listen to this. Now to Zimbabwe for another of our film project collaborations with The Economist magazine. Filmmakers Lucy Bailey and Andrew Thompson spent 2008 recording the experiences of a white family who challenged the land reform policy of President Robert Mugabe. It was designed to reallocate white-owned land to poor black farmers, but Mugabe's henchmen were often the chief beneficiaries. Mike Campbell claimed that the policy violated human rights laws, and he filed suit in an international court based in South Africa. Here's an excerpt from the film Mugabe and the White African. Much of it was shot with a hidden camera. 
their plan is to remove Ellie White Farm off the land. And now we've gone to an international court. And uh, I think this is the last chance we've got to, um, to keep white farmers here. So this case is a huge responsibility. And I know that it wears on Mike's mind constantly. This case is a direct challenge to Robert Mugabe and his government. But it's also a challenge to the rest of the world. We want the world to wake up to the injustices of what is happening inside Zimbabwe. <laughs> Mugabe doesn't want harmony between blacks and whites. He wants the whites to hate the blacks and he wants the blacks to hate the whites. Since the land invasion in 2000, we've had many encounters with Mugabe's Zona PF activists. They can arrive unannounced at any time. We have to be constantly on our guard. Now we find ourselves listening for every vehicle that drives in. And as soon as it arrives, you go and have a look what it is or who it is. And usually it's the farm invaders. It's, it's quite threatening. Remember, you must help each other. Okay, okay. I've just been to the uh, head guard in the compound, and apparently they were there. They told the guard that at the end of the month, when Zana Piaf gets in, then. I'm history, I'm gone. I'll be off the farm and it'll be theirs. So uh, we've got to fight back. I mean, there's no law and order. We can't go to the police. You know, you've got to do something, otherwise you just lie on your back and put your legs and arms in there and call it a day. It's not about hurting these people. We need to let them know, though, that we will protect our guards. We're serious about protecting this farm. You know, I think a country without a rule book is rather like a, a football game or a rugby game that doesn't have rules, doesn't have a referee would just end up in absolute chaos with lots of people getting hurt uh, and that's exactly what's happening in Zimbabwe at the moment. Uh, people are just playing by their own rules. Um, there's no one blowing any whistles at the moment. There's no one keeping to any of the, the rules of the game. And that's why we need to bring referees in from outside who are prepared to make sure that the rules are upheld. I think Mike Campbell is a very committed man who is angry because he has been prosecuted for the unique offence of living in his own house and farming his own farm to which he holds the title deeds. Uh, a farm which he acquired in 1980 after independence, purchased on the open market and on a certificate of no interest by the Zimbabwean government. It's distinctly racially discriminatory. 
They want the farmers out of Zimbabwe. They want to tell them that they are not Zimbabwean, they are not African. But that's racist. You can't adopt a constitution saying we will respect um, your racial orientation, your racial background, and then say white farmers shouldn't own land in Zimbabwe. Come what may. That's what they did. So there is no justification to go for the farms that these farmers now currently have. His case has to be the most uh, interesting in the sense that he is, as it were, despite his age, a new generation, committed Zimbabwean, employing lots of people, a model employer, and yet because he is white, he has been scheduled as being liable without more to be moved off that land. So it's got at the core of it a vague, racist, and entirely unenforceable description. If we win the case, the whole land reform program in Zimbabwe becomes illegal then every farmer that's been kicked off his land has got the right to come back to his farm. Good morning. How are you, Mr. Tomada? How are you? What are you doing here? I'm here for my land. For your land? Yes. Okay. That you've taken. Oh. It was given to me four years ago by the government. So no, no, we've been to the SEDEC tribunal, as you know, Mr. Uh, Tomada. Who's SEDEC? I'm SEDEC. Yes, and, the, and Sedek has said, I am Sadek. Sedek has given us full relief I am until the main case. I am Sadek. Yes. All right. and they Sadek, have the same feeling. And Sedek has said, until the main case, you cannot interfere. Is that why are you refusing to get out of this farm? Tell me. This is my home, Mr. It is Jimmy. your home. Well, you're in the wrong home. Who did you pay? The African, the African, or you paid another white fellow? We paid transfer duties to the Zimbabwe government. <laughs> we bought it on a willing seller, willing buyer basis. Is it? We didn't steal it. Is it? Now, anyway, that's unfortunate because we've realized without land, you have nothing. That's why we're here. And but we you've got land, Mr. We Tomada. haven't got land. I've been to your house in Harare. Yes. Have you? Yes. You've been raiding my home also? No, I, I've what driven were you past coming it. For? The guard wouldn't let me through the gate. Is it? So what were you looking for? I was coming to see where you lived. And what? And do what? Well, if you want to steal my house, maybe you can give me your house. The land belongs to the black prisons. It is ours. The government took it from you people to redistribute it to the black poor majority. And ministers are the black poor majority. Every time you come, you come in a brand new car. This is... What uh, is Toyota Prado what is this got to do worth with about 50,000 US but dollars. But what is this got to do with my Last land? time it was a brand new white twin cab. Yes. Before that it was a Jeep Cherokee. How about you? If yes. you've got all this money, why can't you buy somewhere? I can't buy land in UK. My why father, not? My father, as it is now, everything that he has in London, in America, has all been frozen. You've taken it. My father is not even allowed to go to your country. But you're still here. We are so... Tired of you guys. Can right. a white person not be a Zimbabwean anymore? Not anymore. We don't want you anymore. Get it right? We don't. But we are Zimbabweans. We don't care whether you're Indian, Malawi, Karanga, what not. We just don't want you in particular. It will never be a colon again, this country. I it will never. It Tumada. will never be a colon. I will sleep here until you are out. And I mean it. I want you out. The court eventually ruled in Campbell's favor, but in August 2009, Mugabe's men burned his farm to the ground. 
He died this year at age 79. Mugabe and the White African can be seen next Tuesday on POV on PBS. On our website, Hari Srinivasan talks with Campbell's son-in-law about the family's legal challenge. And you can learn about the Economist Film Project or submit your own film at film.economist.com. Now in that clip, there were examples, real life examples of democide, uh, politicide, and necropolitics. And it was in that case, no such thing as white supremacy. Now we're going to hear from Marvel Mugabe himself. 60 Minutes Rewind. There was a time when the country of Zimbabwe represented the hopes and the aspirations of the entire African continent. It was rich in natural resources, it had democratic institutions, and blacks and whites lived together in relative prosperity. The credit went to Robert Mugabe, the only president Zimbabwe has ever had. He came to power 20 years ago after waging a successful guerrilla war against what was then the white-ruled former British colony of Rhodesia. With independence, he preached conciliation and convinced many whites to stay on and participate in a new democracy. But this past year, things have gone terribly wrong in Zimbabwe. For the first time, President Mugabe is facing tough political opposition, and he has reacted by declaring war on the whites he once courted and on thousands of blacks whose only crime has been to support the political party challenging him. What was once the most promising democracy in Africa is now on the verge of economic collapse and political anarchy. This is what's going on in the countryside today. These scenes were captured by a cameraman for British television. White-owned farms and their black farm workers' houses are being seized and destroyed in a government-sanctioned campaign of racial and political violence. Seven white farmers have been killed so far, and not even their dogs are being spared. In the past year, a major slice of the white population has packed up and left the country, and thousands of well-educated, middle-class blacks are doing the same thing. In the once prosperous capital of Harare, there are shortages of food and fuel. And in Parliament, a resolution has been introduced to impeach Robert Mugabe. When I arrived in the country this morning, uh -huh. the first newspaper I saw <laughs> was this one. Yes. The latest public opinion survey says President Mugabe's popularity has declined so much that 74% of Zimbabweans want him to go. What is your reaction to this? Nonsense, of course. Absolute nonsense. President Mugabe calls it the politics of the moment, but the real question is whether Zimbabwe is still a democracy. At age 76, Mugabe is behaving like a man who is prepared to hold on to power at any cost. With the economy in a shambles and his political support slipping away, he is blaming the country's problems on less than 1% of the population. A few thousand white commercial farmers like Harry Milbank, who own 40% of the best land, employ 25% of the nation's workforce, and provide 40% of the nation's export earnings. Were you told at the time of independence that you were welcome here, that you were welcome yeah. to farm? Yeah. Mugabe started off saying, we want you farmers to stay, you're an important part of the economy, the war is behind us, let's move forward together. I was born here, I'm brought up here, I went to school here. This is my country, I've got nowhere else to go to. And most Zimbabweans agree he should stay. 
Last year, a new constitution that would have allowed the government to confiscate white farms without compensation and given Mugabe 10 more years in power was rejected by the voters. But Mugabe is carrying out the policy anyway. In the past year, more than a thousand white farms have been illegally seized and occupied by a ragtag rural militia known as the war veterans. They know that the, the farmer is, is uh, the most racist uh, of, of the white citizens in the country. And uh, the white farmer has been the crudest of uh, the, the whites in this country, the most backward in terms of uh, the uh, enlightenment and, and education. I, I sit here and I listen to you describe these farmers. Yes. If you were white and you were referring to, to black people that way, most people would take those to be racist comments. Well, how do you speak about racist or racial practices without condemning them? They're, They're all racist, you think? Majority of them, not all of them. There's some very good ones. Mugabe says the war veterans are former soldiers in the War for Independence who have become impatient and decided to take back the land that is theirs by birthright. But most of them are too young to have ever fought in the war, and it's widely recognized that their numbers are made up largely of jobless youths, officers from Central Intelligence, and paid volunteers for Mugabe's political party. They are led by Chenjirai Hunzi, a messianic physician who likes to be called by his nom de guerre, which is Hitler. He says anyone who resists the farm takeovers will end up six feet under. President Mugabe is his organization's official patron. He has your support. Yes, of course. Even though he likes to refer to himself as Hitler. Ah, of course. But what is in the name? It isn't just the name. Martin Olds was one of the first white farmers to be murdered before the June election. His wife, Kathy, a polio victim, says war veterans backed up by Mugabe's North Korean trained special forces surrounded the farm and ambushed her husband. He managed to hold them off for several hours with a hunting rifle and a shotgun, all the while calling for assistance on his radio. They got into the yard and the petrol from the vehicles in the workshop they used to make Molotov cocktails, which they then threw into the house. Martin's last stand was from our bath, where he'd filled it with water to get away from the heat. And obviously when things got too hot for him, he tried to make a run for it and they shot him, mutilated his body and then started pillaging the property. The same week, another white farmer, David Stevens, who had risked his life by openly campaigning for Mugabe's opposition, was kidnapped by a gang of war veterans who seized his farm and hauled him off to the nearest town. The mob brought David Stevens here to the police station in Marewa. But instead of protecting him, the police stood around doing nothing, allowing his kidnappers to drag him off to a nearby cave where he was tied up, beaten, forced to drink diesel fuel, and shot twice in the face. David stood up for what he thought was right, and that's what killed him. Maria Stevens is his widow. Was your husband armed that day? No, David was never armed. We did not have weapons to have as for security. And you think the police were part of this? I don't think, I know. Who do you hold responsible for this? I am holding our president responsible for this. Maria Stevens, wife of David Stevens, who was a, 
a farmer that was killed, mm -hmm. reportedly forced to drink diesel fuel, shot twice in the face uh, by war veterans. His wife says that, that you should be held personally accountable for his death. Why? I wasn't there. I didn't give instructions to anyone. What do you say to Mrs. Stevens? Are you sorry that her husband was killed? We're sorry for any death that occurs, but they provoked the, uh, the war veterans. They shouldn't have done it. They should have been more careful. And they can't lay the blame on us then. President Mugabe told us that your husband provoked this violence, that he was responsible for his own death. That is what Mugabe would like to believe, because it's his only way to get out of this. The story will continue after this. Amnesty International has called the violent state-sponsored terrorism, and it's not just white farmers who are being killed in Zimbabwe. Most of the victims of political violence have been black. In the past year, more than 30 members of the opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, have been murdered, and thousands more have reported incidents of assault and intimidation. Adela Chiminya's husband was out campaigning when he was attacked by a crowd of Mugabe supporters near a service station. He started beating him with the iron bars and some stones. Then they poured some petrol and bent him. They set fire to him after he became unconscious? Yes. Where were the police when this happened? They were at a distance watching. They could see it going on? Yes. These acts are being orchestrated from the top. Paul Niathi is a member of parliament and a party spokesman for the MDC, which won nearly half of the seats contested in the past election. He's also a distinguished veteran from the War of Independence. President Mugabe himself is on record as telling the nation of Zimbabwe that those that are opposed to his rule will be killed. What do you think about what President Mugabe is doing with the white farmers? It's absolutely horrendous. It's disgusting. If land is required, let that land be acquired legally, unleashing unlawful war veterans to go and intimidate white farmers, beat them up. Um, it's, it's not what a president of a country does. Niafi says most previous attempts to resettle war veterans on good farmland have failed miserably, and that's according to the government's own studies. Most have neither the skills nor the resources to make a go of it. And two years ago, the government had to repossess 250 farms that had been given to war veterans. But the policy may be the only way Mugabe can hold on to the support he has left in the rural countryside, and he's not backing down. When we were talking in the fields with farmer Harry Milbank, a group of war veterans appeared on the horizon. Can you just get hold of the police say that they've come on? They're approaching us at the moment, and we'll see what they do. Okay, so they've undone the gate? Yeah, confirmed. One of the farm workers told us that the war veterans were coming to break our cameras, and concerned that our presence was inflaming the situation, we retreated at Milbank's urging to a nearby ridge where we could record what was happening. After haranguing and trying to intimidate Milbank, the war veterans, aware of our presence, decided they would be better off talking to the cameras instead of breaking them. Their leader, Fanwell Chigwideri, told us he was just following orders. We are not doing this on our own. 
but we are following our, uh, the orders from the superior. That is the problem with the government. Mr. Milbank says that the legal process has not taken its course, that he has not been told to give up his land by the courts, and that, uh, that he has a legal right to stay on it. If he is going to argue with us, he is committing suicide. What do you mean he's committing suicide? Ms. Milbank is very stubborn, and we are going to take this farm whether he likes it or not. Don't put yourself into danger. If he miscaught us, then I know we've got your names and we'll get you. This will be the last time to come here for you. The threats are not to be taken lightly. An average of two farmers a week are attacked with pickaxes, machetes, and whips. Ian Hardy was beaten and tortured within an inch of his life when he went to the Morewa police station to try and rescue David Stevens. He doesn't expect anyone to be punished for it, in part because President Mugabe has granted a blanket pardon to anyone liable to criminal prosecution for politically motivated crimes, with the exception of murder. Just one more reason why Hardy and his wife Marjo want to leave. You don't think it's safe here anymore? No, definitely not. Are you looking forward to getting out of the country? I'm nervous, but I'm not prepared to take another chance of losing my husband because it could happen again, and the chances of it happening again is very high. There are plenty of other reasons to leave. The International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have suspended all financial assistance, and the currency reserves are exhausted. Money from the current tobacco crop is already running low. There may not be a next one. The fuel crisis has brought hard times to the townships. These women told us bus fare is often more than their family salary. And Zimbabwe's game parks, the centerpiece of a once strong tourist industry, are empty. Some, like this one at Amiri, are occupied by war veterans. What happens to the animals? I'll try and look after them through thick and thin. 86-year-old Norman Travers worries that the rare black rhinos they breed here and the elephants they train will be poached and eaten. Will you stay here? Of course. This is my country. I love it. Would you be happy to see all the white people leave Zimbabwe? No. I've stayed so out of anger. Would you be happy if they left? If they left on their own accord? Ah, good. They would uh, make, make land more available. Why not? All right, once again, today's podcast is titled The Democide, the Democide Politicide Distinction. And uh, this is a leap off of, uh, a leverage off of yesterday, which we're going to go deeper into it tomorrow and the next day all week. Now, let me read the uh, three important definitions. Matter of fact, let me, before I even get to that, uh, father of... Uh, President John F. Kennedy, father of Robert Kennedy, and Edward Kennedy, and that whole, you know, the Kennedy clan there. He said something that basically, and this is why I really don't, me personally now, recognize the term white supremacy. He stated, eventually, everybody does business with everybody. What it comes down to are interests. People are trying to protect, it could be, their interests could be jobs. Their interests could be land. Their interests could be the way a government is set up. Their interests could be some type of policy within that government. The only color, 
at least the way I see it, are interest. For instance, last couple of years, I've been buying raw land in rural and remote locations. Why? Because I don't like what happened to me, because I'm a black person, and what used to be, like it mattered anyway, a place called Chocolate City, Washington, D.C., it's overregulated. Place like, matter of fact, for me, any town has got 100,000 people or more. You know, I'm going to lower that down to 50,000. 50,000 people or more. For me now, not everybody, because I'm not everybody, typically has just too much regulation for my taste, particularly when it comes to housing regulation. You basically can't live or do what you want to do with your own piece of property. All right. Regardless of color. Color has nothing to do with it. It's just whether you're black, white, blue, purple, green, or some color that we haven't even seen yet on planet Earth, typically towns that have 50,000 or more people, they're typically, when it comes just to an individual household, homestead, typically the rules and regulations for housing is just too much for me to bear. All right. That's my interest. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to places that you have very little government. And when it comes to housing, there may be very few rules or no rules. Some place where I bought this, you don't need a permit to build. Build anything you want to build. With no permit. There's no red signs for me, as a matter of fact, I will not buy anything in a place. And here's some red signs that there are too many rules and regulations and places overpopulated. If a place has a police force, too much regulation for me. I like to be in places where people can govern themselves. If there's a jail, too much regulation. But for me now, once again, I like to be, I guess I'm sort of an anarchist, in a place where people can settle their own disputes one-on-one or in a small group. Um, I don't need a fire department. I don't need the police station. I don't need government services. Those are some of the interesting my interest, because once, you, based on population, at least in the United States and other Western countries, the larger the population, the more rules and regulations that you're going to have, the more government that you're going to have. And t- to me, on an individual basis, that means you have less freedom. Call me a freedom freak. So I'd rather have something on the edge of the wilderness in Alaska than to have a penthouse in Manhattan, New York. Because in Manhattan, New York, with 7, 8 million people, and we're not even talking about metro New York City, you have a lot of rules and regulations. And on top of that, 
these three terms kick in. Democide, politicide, and necropolitics. Let's read. Once again, I'm going with the Joseph Kennedy School of Thought on this. Eventually, everybody does business with everybody. It's all about interest. It's not about color. It might look like it's about color. It comes down to interest. For instance, the last piece I played uh, from 60 Minutes, uh, and, of course, you can watch the movie. Uh, you might be, watch, be able to watch it free on uh, YouTube, Mugabe and a White um, African. In the case of Zimbabwe, when Mugabe was in power, the term white supremacy did not apply to Zimbabwe. Black supremacy reigned. They ran the court system. They ran the government. They ran the judicial system. And after I read this term, this, you know, this this definition of democide. Uh, they're also de facto governments. One of the reasons why I like to be in remote areas because in a remote area, matter of fact, let's go back to the, on the fringes of the wilderness of Alaska. The de facto government was, was, is whatever happens between me and nature or me and the people that I'm dealing with. You can't call a police in the wilderness of Alaska. Because they are none. But that's another podcast. Anyway, democide. Okay, let's uh, read this. Democide um, is defined as the intentional killing of unarmed or disarmed persons by the government uh, active uh, or, uh, or agents acting in their authoritative capacity pursuant to the government policy or high command. Now, that last clip we played, uh, which was a 60 Minutes piece uh, in Zimbabwe, and to get a visual on it, go to YouTube and put in uh, Zimbabwe, white African, um, uh, and there's some clips that will pop up. You can see the visual of it. And the visual you see is basically the de facto government, which is because you know, they were saying that, you know, these white folks, we need to take their land back. And we're talking about 2% of the land mass of um, Zimbabwe. However, and somebody might say, you know, there's racist and, you know, black supremacy and all. That's why, that, here's why I'm reading, we're doing this podcast today on democide, politicide, and necropolitics. Had and it's all about interest, not color. Had that farmer been a black American, I would say the same thing would happen. What the locals were going after was their interest was the land, and they didn't want the land to be in possession of somebody that wasn't of their community, or organic community. 
Could have been me. Could have been anybody. Could have been a black American. Could have been somebody from Jamaica, black from Jamaica or Brazil. I'll give you an example of something that happened here in this country. Matter of fact, I had a guest on the show maybe a year or two ago. Some friends I have in Ohio, they happen to be white. And they live on a farm. And they've got goats, chickens, um, llamas, that type of thing. So the guy, he was running for office for the local school board there. Now, mind you, this is in Ohio, in a rural area of Ohio. He's white. His wife is white. 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 Okay. And he was running for school board. The locals didn't want him running for school board. He's originally, now mind you, he had been living in this community for about 15 years already. Maybe 20 years, but he had been there, he and his wife and family, all white folk, had been living there for at least 15 years already. So he decided to run for school board, and some of the other locals did not want him running for school board. Now, let me tell you who some of these other locals were. The other locals that did not want him running for school board, and these people marry each other in that neck of the woods. He was like an outsider because he's originally from the state of Minnesota. He wasn't from this neck of the woods in uh, this particular part of Ohio. I'm not going to name the place because I got to go back there one day. But um, the people that they wanted on that school board, and this is politics, local politics, were people that were born and raised in this particular rural area of Ohio. Now, they made it clear to him that he wasn't one of them. Because he wasn't born, and this is, we're talking about white on white folks now. This is why, this is why I do not recognize white supremacy, the term white supremacy. White on white folks, okay. But due to the fact that he was not born and raised in that particular neck of the woods in Ohio, they would want this person to drop out of the race. He didn't drop out of the race. At least not right away he did. One morning he went out because they live on a farm. You know, you know, to feed our animals and you know, the, the goats and all llamas, all that. Long story short, one of the llamas heads, well, they found a decapitated llama. One of their llamas was decapitated. Uh, decapitated. I mean, he can report it to the police, which he probably did. But Sheriff Barney Fife, or whatever his name was, was born and raised there. Couldn't help it. Can't call it white supremacy. Thursday and Friday, we're going to go into the backstories of Chinese Americans as well as some other groups and compare it to African Americans. You'll be amazed at a lot of these, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities 
if you get into the backstories among different groups that have been discriminated against, not only in the United States, but around the globe. But anyway, getting back to democide definition. So the definition of democide is the intentional killing of unarmed or disarmed persons by the government or our agents acting in the authoritative capacity and pursuant to government policy or high command. Um, let's see. This covers a wide range of deaths, including forced labor, concentration camps, uh, concentration camp victims, killings by unofficial private groups, all right, which we've had in this country, like whoever killed Megger Evans, Evers, that was an unofficial private group. And in the piece that we just played in Zimbabwe, the white farmer was killed by a de facto private group. As I stated yesterday, everybody has been shit on. Uh, Mass deaths due to government acts of criminal omission or neglect such as deliberate famines, as well as killings by de facto governments, i.e. civil war killings. The definition of democide covers any uh, murder of a number of persons by any government. Three meanings of, uh, well, the three meanings of genocide. You have, or distinctions rather, you have ordinary Ordinary genocide is the ordinary meaning of murder by government people due to their national, ethnic, racial, or religious group membership. Second distinction, legal. The legal meaning of genocide refers to the International Treaty on Genocide, the Convention on Prevention and Punishment of Crime of Genocide. This includes non-lethal acts that can eliminate or greatly hinder a group um, looking back on history, one can see the different variations of democides that have occurred but still consist of acts of killing um, or mass murder. Now, you can say Jim Crow is a form of democide. You can also say the Exclusion Act, when it came to the Chinese Exclusion Act in this country, was a form of that too. Only thing is, during Jim Crow, you had a large number of black Americans who became millionaires. Because occasionally we were on this podcast, Jim Crow millionaires. And you've had quite a few Chinese Americans on a family household level that have become wealthy by opening up food establishments. The third distinction, genocide, genocide, the generalized meaning, once again, um, the government killing um, killing the people and political opponents, otherwise intentional murder. In order to avoid confusion over which meaning is intended, uh, this guy uh, Rommel um, created the term democide, which has the third meaning. All right, examples. Some of the examples of democide cited uh, are the Great Purges, by Joseph Stalin 
uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, the colonial policy in the Congo Free State, Mao Zedong's Great Leap, many of your Chinese carryouts. And we're going to go through this later in the week. When we compare, again, Chinese Americans and African Americans, many of the Chinese, and there are 41,000 of them in the United States and counting right now, many of the Chinese restaurants, a backstory on that is, roots has its roots in Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. Where he killed, matter of fact, Mao Zedong might be the greatest mass murderer in contemporary history. Matter of fact, let me add some more minutes on this. Whatever was done during colonial slavery, when we colonized the Western Hemisphere, he dwarfed that number. In contemporary times, a lot of the Chinese restaurants that were opened in the United States, the backstory was these people essentially came in this country as a matter of survival. Some of them had lost families during the during Mao Zedong's Great Leap. Matter of fact, if you were a landlord. During that period of time, he killed millions of landlords in China. Democide. Some that escaped and made it to the United States. They went to different parts of the world, not just the United States. They couldn't get a government job, as we as yesterday with the Exclusion Act. Um. They couldn't own real estate in certain periods of time in the United States. So what could they do? They could cook, and they could do laundry. And they went from there. But we're going to cover that. We're going to get deeper into that Thursday and Friday. Um, Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward, Winston Churchill, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. Including democides and politicides that Wiped out quite a few white folks. Definition of politicide. Politicide may be referred to the following. Uh, political cleansing of a population. One of the reasons why we had, uh, we've had two black mayors on It's My House. Maybe three. No, no, we that guy was a lobbyist. But we've had at least two black mayors on this model. Let me read the definition of politicide, and then I'm related to uh, Black Wall Street. Okay. Politi- uh, political cleansing of a population. Deliberate physical, constru- uh, physical destruction of a group whose members share of the main characteristic of belonging to a political movement, once again, Joseph Kennedy said it, eventually everybody does business with everybody. 
The name of the game are interest. The only color that counts are per a person's interest. Black, white, blue, purple, brown don't count. It's about interest. The systematic destruction of subgroups, such groups are uh, covered uh, uh, as genocide under the National, I mean, the United Nations Convention and Prevention and Punishment of Crimes of Genocide. Um, Politicide is a systematic attempt to cause the alienation of an independent political and social party. Let's go to Black Wall Street. O.W. Gurley, a black man, Oklahoma, which was politically a hotbed for the Ku Klux Klan. He bought 40 acres of land in Klan country. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Then he sold plots of land to other people, all black, and that became what we call today Black Wall Street. It was the Greenwood uh, neighborhood, a Greenwood district, which still exists today, in name at least. Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we've heard about the prosperity of the blacks that were there. But apparently along the way, he didn't do, they didn't do, they didn't integrate. In other words, they didn't hire anybody out of the greater community that existed in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like you look at the day, if you look at going to a hardcore black neighborhood where there's a, a liquor store that's run by Asians, typically you're gonna see one two, three black folk in that in that liquor store, dry cleaner, Chinese carry house, they're gonna have somebody that that lives in that neighborhood working in that neighborhood. Why do they do it? So that neighborhood will not be picketed, processed, or burnt to the ground. And black, what with Black Wall Street in 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma, O.W. Gurley didn't factor that in when he bought those 40 acres of land. And as a community, they didn't factor that in. So they burnt it, bombed it to the ground. Wasn't able to recover like it was once was. If you go to the Greenwood Chamber of Commerce, Tulsa, Oklahoma, look at the demographic number today in 2018. Now, at the exact same time, same year, same time, same state, there were 50 black municipalities in Oklahoma. Some of those municipalities, and there's more than that 
really today, if you include the unincorporated black community, that still exists, that have never had any racial discord, never, no riots, no deaths, no nothing negative, because they bought in geographical locations where they would not be touched. And if they could, it, it, and they, could, they were in a position where they could defend themselves probably, but it's never come to that, and it's been over 100 years. Politicized. O.W. Gurley bought those 40 acres. Now, let, let's say he sold all black people. That's all right, too. But when you get to, when you got all these wealthy people, because it's really about classism. It's not about racism or color. It's about classism. When you got these poor white, poor people, let me put it that way. When you got these poor people that hate on you, jealous, I wish I had this and that other, because if you get into the, the nitty-gritty of the, 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 the whole Black Wall Street thing, what these people did was before they burnt down the block, they went to these homes and took people's trinkets, jewelries, dresses, nice suits, china, fine wear. They, they took all those nice possessions of black folks for themselves. Had you hired some of them, as Asians have done, hire some of the, the, out of the larger community, because you're outnumbered. Hire Billy Bob to sweep up. Hire Billy Bob or Betty Sue to run the elevator. Put put the Cletus, have him be the, 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 the night manager at the boarding house we got. They didn't do that. And that's where politicide comes in. With that, you got to show up for meetings. Because after they burnt the Greenwood neighborhood now, and they went back to rebuild, they found out that the rules for zoning had changed. Politicide at its greatest. You got to go to those neighborhood meetings. You got to go to those neighborhood planning meetings and find out what's going to be happening for the next 25 to 30 years as far as the city and your neighborhood. You need to do it on a household basis anyway because you can't have any generational wealth that way. There's a lot of, there's a lot of basic components that go into politicize. If you don't show up at the meetings for planning and zoning, you're committing politicize on yourself. You're killing yourself regardless of color. Once again, as Joseph, Joseph Kennedy said it, not me, eventually everybody does business with everybody. It's about interest. Necropolitics. Necropolitics is the use of social and political power to dictate how some people may live and how some people must die, and let me add on something to that, and how people will do business. 
despite the fact that at one time in this country there was a law in the books, the Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese American Exclusion Act, which prevented a Chinese American from owning a piece of real estate. That's why they had to sleep at the back of their stores. That's why they had to start a business, because they weren't going to get a government job. They weren't going to get that opening as city clerk. They weren't going to work at the mayor's office and be secretary for the mayor. They weren't even going to get the job of sweeping up after the mayor, in the mayor's office. That, that just wasn't going to happen. Not with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Started businesses. They slept in their own stores. And in the process, the community got wealthy. As I stated yesterday, in the United States, you have 41,000 Chinese restaurants, most of them carry-offs, that are taking an $18 billion a year income. There are three times as many Chinese restaurants in the United States than there are McDonald's restaurants. Matter of fact, you can add on Burger King and Wendy's and some more, and they've got more than that. That's just here in the United States. But with that, mind you, they haven't marched, they haven't protested, they have not been a, a million-man Chinese-American march. But what they've done with those carryouts is they've sent people to school to be accountants, lawyers, doctors, and business people because, once again, everybody within the sound of my voice, there's some type of Chinese made-in-China product in your home. And depending on how old you are, matter of fact, it doesn't even matter how old you are now, there's some type of Japanese product in your home or possession now, too. So how could these two groups of people, Chinese, Japanese, how, how can they get all this economic power and they did it quietly? Necropolitics. What they found out early in the game is, and we, we got black people that have done it too late, so we're, we're going to highlight the achievements of black folks Thursday and Friday on this. They found out how the game was run. And politicians, anywhere you go in the world, basically, are whores. You can buy them. And that's why I play the Claude Anderson piece almost every morning. Buy or lease your politicians. So if they got the contract to supply plumbing pipes to City Hall, that's money. Once again, it's not about color. It's about interest. Politicians need money to do things, and politicians do not care what color you are. Can you bankroll their interest? We'll go more into democide, necropolitics, and uh, uh, politicized Thursday and Friday because tomorrow we're, we're going to get into 
we're going to get to the fundamental root core of how a community can prosper by taking the most fundamental element of a community. I'm not going to announce what it is, but it, 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 it'll be an interesting um, podcast tomorrow on the fundamental root core of any community to prosper, regardless of color. And then Thursday and Friday, we're going to tie in everything, the democize, the, the, uh, the politicized, necropolitics, bring that all together under the banner like, you know, Joseph Kennedy said, eventually everyone does business with everyone. And landholdings that we have in, like, remote areas, the demographics, depending on where we go, are different. But the answers are the same. We are in these places because we want less government. And what can we do together to keep larger government out of our hair? Uh, seven seven three. Your mic is open. <laughs> well, good morning, y'all, and good morning to the audience this morning. You know, on Friday's morning, Doctor, you explained it much better than I do because I've been hollering about desperate interest for for how many years now? And uh, you know, I, I um, we got to come to our political, uh, our economic political. Uh, Program on October first. Get, get geared up. You got to come to Chicago because you got to be, you got to be one of the guest guest speakers. And put this program that you have uh, outlined yesterday and today on the side because these are the issues that I want you to speak on. But at the same time, as these are issues that we're going to put in the, in the library and write some books on because this is not taught in our schools. This is one of the. Well, are you on the speakerphone? Are you on the speakerphone? Yeah. Uh, I can barely hear you. All right, let me get, let me cut it off. All right. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that's much better. I want you to get geared up for October first to come to Chicago because I want you to be one of the keynote speakers at our summit. We do a summit the first, the first uh, day of the uh, shucks. We do a uh, economic political summit the first day of October. So, <clears throat> they, what you're talking about yesterday and today is what I've been talking about for years, and we've been talking about vested interests. You heard me say that practically on every program, because if you don't have a customer base, you don't have any business. So, therefore, you have to do business with everybody. Everybody that needs the product may have to do business with you because that's what you are producing. You know now that we are engaged in being, uh, building a, a city that was back in slavery in the 1800s. You looked it up. Back in the 1800s was established. <clears throat> No one has done anything with it in our race with that 
community as of yet. Now, what we found out, that that uh, little town is larger than the demographics of Chicago. Why hasn't it blossomed? It's because we haven't had the right politics and leadership of this community. Just uh, Sunday, I believe it was, there was another protest here in Chicago. You may have seen it on TV. It's where they shut down one Saturday Expressway to make a point. But as you stated earlier, two million men marches, and I think you and I did the numbers on it, has not produced anything but just it didn't even produce awareness of the condition because there was no plan in place to show or teach how economics actually play a part in our everyday life. So you are know right I on target. Um, that um you know what I'm glad you brought up the um that thing in Chicago where now let me think cuz I, I I saw this on Facebook. Make sure I got the right event that happened in Chicago. There was okay. um I guess an Asian-owned liquor store, some type of a convenience store, and the um, there was a security guard in there that detained or attempted to detain uh, somebody in the store, and the person ended up dead. Am I correct? Is that the same event? No, it's not the same event. That's another one. I'm talking about the I'm talking about the protest that happened on Sunday. Well, now what triggered that but, protest though? What was that pro- protest? Because for? of the because of the gun violence that's here in Chicago and all the killings that people want to bring awareness. They're trying to bring awareness to the governor and the all the, uh, the governor and the uh, mayor to do something and the police department to do something about all these killings. And they act as if though it's going to happen. So it hasn't happened but you know because what? it's All only right. getting worse. Okay, matter of fact, let me tie let me tie in what you just stated. Uh, that that roadside uh, freeway thing, uh, along with the person who got killed in Chicago at the convenience store, and what you said with vested interest, and tied into these definitions that we brought out today, necropolitics. Uh, and politicized, okay, yeah. and even uh, yeah. democide. All right, vested interest is the key. If yeah. taking Chicago, okay, if you, if we don't, if anybody does not, and here's what I what I mean by vested interest in the city of Chicago. If you don't have a vested interest, and and I'm gonna put it, it real, I'm gonna get it where the ghost get it. Can you can understand it? If you don't bankroll the mayor in the office, if you don't bankroll all the aldermen in the office, you do not have the political power you need to appoint the police chief to get the new to get the rules and regulations and the policy you want on the black and white books. It's not going to happen. It's just like no. if you go to McDonald's and you want a Big Mac. The vested interest that you got to have to get that Big Mac at McDonald's. You got to come out of your pocket and bankroll it with five dollars. The exact yep. same principle happens with yes. politics, and until Every black community. folks get that, now hold, some black folks got it because we do have black folks that are dog catchers, mayors, aldermen, 
on up to the president of the United States. We do have black official uh, officials, but I'm talking about you got to bankroll them on the front end to get the kind of actions that you want. If you want these killings to stop, marching ain't going to cut it. Take no, the money that you want to spend to catch the bus or catch the cab down to the march. Take that money and pull it and bankroll people in the office. Use that money to hire lobbyists to educate and write the legislation that you want. That's the best answer that we're talking about. We Black folk have not done that on a critical mass basis. Asian Americans have done it. That's why in everybody within the sound of my voice, there's Asian, there's something in your house that comes from China. Your silverware, the piping behind your walls, the bathroom kitchen sink, the bathroom toilet, something in your house comes from China because they have taken a vested interest to bankroll politicians to get the legislation to get that in here. I'm talking on a yeah. Samsung phone. That's from Japan. It took yeah. a vested interest in Samsung somewhere in Japan to bankroll politicians in this country, so this phone is in my hand right now. Mine too. And, I, and I'm in Chicago, and it came from where? <laughs> now, let's see. Some, have, some black folks, we got it. Some black folks, we got it, and we, we, we done been at it. But it's too many of us that are separated. We're acting as lone wolves. We have got to get together yeah. on a critical mass basis and practice necropolitics. Yep. Where well, we that's what we have. Who's going to get what yeah. for our particular interest? Now, you, 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 you said me? something earlier. Yeah. You, you said something earlier about uh, downsizing the political arena. Well, you know, the uh, Republicans have been talking about downsizing the political arena for the longest. But if you, even when you downsize, if you don't have the vested interest in the community, you can't do what Trump is doing and let's put uh, leverage on somebody else that's going to be shipping product into the country. What are you going to do with that? And when you stop people from selling for overseas, you're complaining about those people buying, buying and selling overseas, and you're, you're putting a, a leverage on the people that's trying to sell product in America. So who are you hurting? It goes back to metro politics, like you said, because everybody has to do business with everybody, and doing business right. with everybody and doing business with everybody gives you a hand up on producing the product that's consumed by us on a daily basis. Look at Walmart for for an example. Walmart, how many how many organizations have product on the shelves of Walmart? You go in Walmart's to shop and you can't count how many people now has the power of a vested interest with Walmart or in a grocery store. You know, that's that's one of the things that we're going to be addressing when we go to the meeting. You know, I told you that uh, I'll be uh, heading up the operation of Pembroke. 
And these are the things that we got on paper. Right now, this morning, I was writing down to some of the people that are committed to be at this meeting next week so that we can get started to do what? Pool the money, to organize the funds, to get all of these things started. And we're going to start with a grocery store first because Pembroke don't have a grocery store. And then we can spread out from there. But you got to start somewhere with the, with the money Matter and fact, the Clinton, politics. Does, does, uh, does Pembroke have a police force? It, uh, it will when I get there because they just got the paperwork back from the state that we can have our own police force. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got, for people I've that have never heard I, of it, there's a – there's a place in Illinois that Pleasant turned me on uh, to about a couple of weeks ago. Never heard about it until he told me. And he told me about two communities, but they're about an hour away from Chicago. Uh, the one he just we're talking about now is Primbrook, Illinois, which is a historic black township. About an hour away from Chicago. Yeah. Now. now, they're able yeah. to do now. Pleasant, who lives in Chicago, is he'll be able to do things and um, Pembroke that will be more difficult, Chicago, because Chicago's best, a lot of their vested interests have been bought and paid for probably before even Pleasant was born. But even today, yeah. it's just easier for a person to, let, let, let's take, matter of fact, Let's take somebody who's 21 years old and don't have a pot to piss in. It's easier to get your foot in the door with a vested interest in a Pembroke, Illinois, versus a Chicago, Illinois. And they're only an hour away from each other. Yeah, it is. But they, look me up. they look me up because of some work that I did nine years ago. So, <laughs> if you don't have a vested interest, I I put down my vested interest nine years ago in Pembroke, and before that, I had a cousin that bought a house and lived in in two areas of Pembroke. Now Pembroke, I'm putting on the map, is uh, we're going to open our own airport at some point. Right next door to me, a young lady just finished her flying school or whatever she's had. And she flew her first flight on, I believe it was either Saturday or Sunday. I want her to put the, uh, she'd be the first person to put her wheels down in Pembroke. And that's, and that, and it's big enough for an airport. It's big enough and large enough. It's just larger than uh, uh, Midway Airport. So we can have What you're saying is, and this goes back to the black Wall Street and the black towns thing, okay? It all comes down to what Joseph Kennedy was talking about, interest. All right. The reason why none of those other black, matter of fact, black, because black Wall Street, the Greenwood uh, district uh, in Tulsa, that was a neighborhood, all right? The reason why that was affected, and and how come the other black township, well, the, the, the towns, the black towns in Oklahoma, have never experienced any kind of racial uh, upheaval in over 100 years is because the people in Tulsa, all they care about are their interests in Tulsa. 
They don't care what's happening in Blackjack, Oklahoma, in Taft, Oklahoma, and no. Boley, Oklahoma. They don't care about it. If we go back to the history of because Chinese Americans, they never bothered to get involved in governmental, local, or state politics early on. No. That's why, you know, when they were massacred or lynched or whatever, these people were doing it because they were trying to protect those political interests. But they quietly grew because, you know what, well, people got to eat. You know, let, let's feed the black people. Let's set up a grocery yeah. store in a black neighborhood. They were, they've been left alone for over 145 years. Yeah. Yeah. Once you know, again, Joe, it, I can't emphasize enough. Joe, it's about interest and not about color. Yeah. It might look like color, but it's about interest. Well, it's, it's, it's color sure if you look at it. I'm members that will do business with a black person if they have the same interest. Well, it's, it's about color if you look at it being green, and that's money. Yeah, well, because we had white folks. we had white folks working for us on day labor when I was a boy. Daddy, Daddy even loaned a man three hundred dollars to buy a tent, and he loaned him some more money to build a tent. And he worked for us about three years. And that's in and that was oh, in Arkansas. You're right. I know. Uh, I was in one location when I went to because uh, I used day labor myself. I went to one location. As a matter of fact, all the day labor at this particular shelter. They were all white. I hired yeah. an all white crew because that was all that was in this men's shelter was white, white, you know, white dudes. Didn't have any problem out of none of them. And like you said, the common denominator was green. They didn't care what right. color I was as long as they got paid green at the end of their work day. Yeah, that's right. And if you, <laughs> you use know, them as you security, because a lot of times. You can use them as security on a, you know, on a vacant property. If you say, look, yeah. stay in here. You don't have to pay any rent. Just watch out for the place. You got a place there. Because yeah. I know quite a few people that do that. Uh, they hire one of their workers to give them a place to stay, to get them out of the shelter. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so, like I say, that, if there is a color, it's green. That, that's the only one that counts. <laughs> but all, it all comes green is- down... Yeah, it all comes down to interest, because I think a lot of people in this country, they like it might look like that, but if 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 we're absent, like for instance, there are very few pol- black political action committees in this country. Political action committees yeah. and super PAC, they bankroll your federal, you know, your federal, a lot of your federal and state elections. Yeah. On this, well, you on know, this I was, killing, I was uh, on the killings of black men. Let's take the killings of black men in the country by law enforcement. Yeah. I'm yeah. afraid to miss I, I was a see a lot of those and a lot of those what, what we're missing about killing the black men by law enforcement. A lot of them be, are being killed by the Ku Klux Klan, and they're covering it up. Yeah, well. But here, here, here's where I was going to go with that. All right, let's say that's true. Here's here's where we're, we're not playing the necropolitics, the democide, and the politicide of this. 
you take a place like Ferguson, okay, in a town that's 70% black, okay, you got a white mayor, you got, got, got a product at the top of Mike Brown's killing. You had one black city council member. Town 70% black. If you, who bank, first thing, and I had to relate it to the King James Bible because black folks relate to this. Bankroll <laughs> who you want for mayor like you bankroll pastor every Sunday. Because pastor takes in a billion dollars a month in the black community. Bankroll yeah. the city council on the front end like you bankroll pastor. Yeah. Bankroll some lobbyists to write the rules and regulations to pick the police chief that you want in office like you bankroll pastor. It's the exact same principle. Yeah. But if you're absent from the system, if you don't donate money to elect the mayor, if you don't elect, uh, uh, don't donate money to go around the table and bankroll the councilman, you get what you get. The Klan has no business getting elected to any office or hired on any police force where the town is seventy percent black. Uh, black. It's your fault if it happens. Let's look at something that happened back in the 60s. President Kennedy playing out of business to a degree. The Ku Klux Klan went underground and reorganized. Then they strategized after that for this past election. And now look at what they got in office. And look at the two people that have been, one has been installed, well, actually three, because the president is one. He installed another one. Now he's installing another with the approval of his constituents. So look how the strategy works. So it, because they all went underground and pooled their money to come out with what we have that's representing the United States now. It's bigger than we ever thought it would ever be. And that happened in the 1960s. And I'm just fortunate enough to have been uh, and uh, see and looking at politics from the from the days of uh, from the days of uh, uh, where we had to used to pay poll tax to vote and the vote didn't count then and it don't count now. So but they don't have everything. They're, they're like, if you look at like a lot of these black townships, matter of fact, black townships like Taft, Oklahoma, five black women run Taft. Yeah. And, and it's been run that help. way. It's been run that way for <laughs> over a hundred years. That black yeah. people now have political the... control over Taft and the, of these other black townships. Now, yeah. most of these black townships in the United States are rural. Now, what Chinatown yeah. has done. Chinatown simply sets up shop in a downtown urban area, and they run that. And they, the reason why they're able to get prime real estate is because they bank. But matter of fact, let's go back. Let's take another page out of the Chinese American thing, which black folks can do too. 
And some black folks have done it, but it's just not enough of them. If you take and Joseph Kennedy's thing, eventually everybody does business with everybody, okay, a black, I mean, a Chinese-American family will set up shop in the heart of, you know what, let's let's go to where the Starbucks thing was, Philadelphia, okay? So the customer base of black people, primarily. So they're doing business with black people. The common interest is I want your green, and in order for me to get your green, I got to serve you shrimp fried rice, egg rolls, or whatever you like, okay? That's yeah. the common interest yeah. there, all right? Now, in order to keep that location and to keep the rules and regulations in their favor so they can start keep staying in business and property and keep on getting, doing business with black folk, they got to bankroll some of the local politicians. Once again, Joseph Kennedy saying everybody has to do business with everybody. Yeah, that's one example of it. Now, we we do have some African-Americans that are following that. Because if you open up, a, uh, what do you call it, Black Enterprise Magazine, that's a good example that you can see on a month-to-month basis that black people do do that. We just we just said we need more of that. Because like I said, there are 41,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States taking in 18 billion, feeding people. They feed everybody. Yeah. We need to do that. We need to start feeding every like what's what's that show on Oprah's uh, network on um, Sweetie Pies. I like to see that yeah. go national, and I like to see other black people open up something locally. You know, and if if your thing is you make a good bread pudding, open up a business selling bread pudding. Yeah, if you. We got all kind of recipes yep. that people would like. Uh, LA, how many franchises do we have that has went worldwide? I know we own some fran like you do have black folks that own McDonald's franchises and Kentucky franchises. Yeah, but we, do what what but do, on a what scale do, like a sweetie five, which is the concept of yeah. black. I don't who know the of any right now. I don't know of any right who now because I think Queen Pies is still family-owned and operated. They might have like three locations now, but that's still a family-oriented business. Who owned the franchises that has went worldwide in the black community? I don't know of any. There might be some. None. I don't know of any. I don't know of not one. Why haven't we? Because we haven't pooled our money together and been taught how unity actually runs the country because of the money that's collected goes into a collective to where everybody gets their share at the end, get their share at the end of the year. Now, you know, That's here's a simple high. business. Speaking of the black community, I'm about to go to the next phone call here. Here's a simple business that could be franchised in the black community. Um, as we know, there's a billion dollars in ties and offerings collected monthly, minimum, 
in the black community in the United States. And a lot of these churches have fish fries, they sell chicken dinners, what have you. Let's say T.D. Jakes, well, pick whoever you want, Creflo, Dollar, Fred Price, whoever. T.D. Jakes, let's say they got together and formed um, God's Property Fried Chicken, for lack of a better term. And then they, so those three got together, and then they sold distributorships to other black churches. And they had they had a priority of hiring people that were church members, and also some people that might not be church members, people that might live in the neighborhood. Hire, hire some of them too. Let's not repeat the mistakes of Black Wall Street. Let's hire some people in the community, okay, as well as church members. That idea can be done within the next 30 days. Here's the trick, though. Here's the flying ointment. How can we get Fred Price, T.G. Takes, and Creflo Dollar together and agree to do that? Because the money's there. The brain power's there. There are accountants and bookkeepers in every one of those churches that are capable. The investment money is there. We all understand chicken. We have a lot of people that understand the business of running a restaurant. The talent pool and everybody is there. The trick is, oh, you know, and oh, once we get that going, because see, that business can be started within the next thirty days. And within about the end of the year, we can have forty-one thousand outlets. Yeah, with God's property fried chicken, and that's well, you know, billion dollars. I got that. That that's eighteen billion dollars that black folks are sitting on in the black community church right now. Well, I, we got a meeting. We got a meeting. We got a meeting come up coming up uh, uh, next week. And uh, this meeting comprised of 20 people. And that 20 people is going to listen to what we have to say. And we're going to be talking about what you talked about yesterday and today. And these 20 people is going to help raise. We are looking at raising $50 million so that we can put Pembroke back on the map. Now, we're going to do that with fundraisers, just like the churches do when they have programs. I have already lined up the people for the committees that's going to be running different parts of the organization to put on the fundraisers. All of this is going to come to what we're talking about today. All of this is going to come to a head next week. I'll call you and let you know when we're doing it. October, again, October 1st, if you want to be in, in our, on our show for our political, our political summit, you have an open invitation to come to Chicago and be our guest speaker. Because 
we okay. have to get I'll, this done. I'll, I'll, I'll book that ticket. I'll book that ticket and let you know. Uh, I'll right. try to do that because too. we uh, now. Let me put this we out have, before we go to our next. Let, let me put this right. out there before I go to our next question. Uh, instead of because there's somebody that's listening that can make like say you make good bread pudding, fried chicken, food, whatever your thing is you like to cook. Don't try to get a million people to jump on board. You know what? Don't even try to get ten people to jump on board. Starts with one. Start yeah. this little. For those of you out there that have wanted to start some type of business with food or anything, just start it yourself. Start it yourself at on your kitchen table. Uh, if you got a cooperative spouse or family member, just one person, that will help. But Start it yourself and let it go from there. Because tomorrow we're going to get into a, a, the, the root cause, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is within the house. And because um, there are many ways to achieve, but like I say, the, the talent is there. And like I said, we, we got, there, there's a lot of things happening um, that we don't see as well. So it, 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 Let's start, and who knows? You might have, you know, you know like say the there. That's a reparations within our feet there, because there's a lot of food deserts in the African American community still now in 2018 going to 2019. Over the last 145 years, the Chinese Americans have only they fed us. Some of us, they opened up grocery stores because there were food deserts. Well, there's still a lot of food deserts. Like in Pleasant, you just bought up one in Pembroke. Pembroke, Illinois, yeah. there's a food desert there. So if, if you want to um, open up a little convenience store, uh, and you don't have to have a, something big, uh, or you might want – you can pull up with some. You might know somebody um, like uh, one of your people, Pleasant, uh, Mayberry Parker. They had the hot sauce. So yep. you guys open up a store, all right, then the hot sauce people, they have an exclusive right for that particular store. No other hot sauce can come in here but the Parker hot sauce. Then somebody might be good at baking bread. Okay, they got exclusive rights. The baking bread, all right. Start off like really something real simple, because like I said, there there uh, are a lot of food deserts uh, in this country. Anyway, let's let's go to the next uh, call here before we run out of time. Um, four ten, your mic is open. Hey, brother LA, how you doing? Fine, fine. Uh, look, I got to make a correction on uh, the Color uh, Merchants Association. I said okay. that Booker T. Washington uh, was the one that, uh, you know, pushed that program forward. It was the National Negro Business League that spreaded that principle to the to 26 cities in the United States. And it was A.C. Brown in Birmingham, Alabama, that actually started it. 
in Birmingham, Alabama, and the National Negro Business League saw it and projected it out to other towns. So they were the ones that um, that did it. So I wanted to make that now, correction because isn't um are they still around or did they man it's it's um it's a group that's a, a black business league that's still around. I forgot the name of it. The name's right on the tip of my tongue. They changed the National Negro Business League to the National Black Business League or some stuff like that. But anyway, um, the thing is the CMA or the Colored Merchants Association folded during the Depression. And they don't pay you, but the thing is uh, the wholesalers put pressure on them to do it. They said that they couldn't pay the wholesalers uh, the bills that they owed them, so they folded. But getting back to your original topic, uh, I've been trying to look up what is it, Neko, Nick, Nico, and Neko. Necro, Necro. Uh, yes, yeah, three words. Uh, Necro politics, democide, D E M O C I D E, democide, and politicize. Three different okay, words. Okay, I found, I found uh, democide and politicize. I couldn't find Necro. Is it N A R O C O or N A C R O? Uh, Necro politics is spelled N E C R O P. Yeah, Necro and then politics is one word together. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and I, look, I, I hope you the don't. The reason why I, 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 the reason why I bought those three term words up is, I think we need to take a look at those to have you know a, a more a fuller discussion. On certain, you know, certain topics. Well, you know, yesterday you and I talked, and the thing is, uh, all of those are strategies that really comes out of white supremacy. They're tactics. But now, look, you said that white supremacy doesn't exist, but you well, also, that's why, well, in well, my well, well, now you got you got to look at the context. It all depends on the context. Because two of the clips I played this morning uh, took place, you know, were in Zimbabwe. So Mugabe and his government, which is all black, they were running white folks out of the country. However, over in this country, the context changes. So if you're if you're in some place in Vermont uh, or Bangor, Maine, okay. The, the demographics or the color changes. However, switching the context again, if let, let's say you got two homeowners, uh, one's black, one's white, and there's a rule that comes by that you can't rent any of your rooms out in your house, then you two have a common interest that you, and let's say you two want to, rent rooms out in your house, you don't want that regulation on your house that you can't do what you want with it, then your common interest is, regardless of your color, you know, that's what, and I like the way you put it, you you could look at necropolitics, democide, uh, 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 and politics. You could look at it as a strategy of white supremacy, but you could look at it as a strategy of anybody who's in charge anywhere they are demographically. So, you got to look at the context of it. Well, I'm not so much interested in anybody else's issues but black issues, okay? Because now look, 
the thing is, is this, and you know, that's that's fine about the other people. You know, the other people don't have the problems we have. Uh, all I'm saying is this: uh, you're probably not old enough to remember a picture that used to come on uh, TV a lot. It was called Wagon Train. I and remember what happened when I was little. Oh, okay. Well, you go back a little bit, just as full back as I do. Well, the thing is, another wagon train came over there and robbed them of their food supply and took the horses and cows and the women and stuff and ran off with them. So the men in uh, the wagon train that they robbed was out scouting and searching for different routes and things like that. But they left a guy named Charlie that he was a cook. He was just a cook. He couldn't do nothing with the women. So when the men got back, there's Charlie. They said, look, uh, what happened to all our women? And, and, and where's our cattle? And where's our horses and our food? And he said, look, uh, people from the other wagon train came over here and robbed and took all of that stuff and took our women too and our children. And the, and the guy named Bill Hawks that was in charge of the wagon train said, look, men, I want you to mount up, get all of Get your weapons right, get your guns right, and we're going to go over there and we're going to take back our women and our cattle. We're going to kill them suckers. And Charlie said, look, the cook said, look, they came over here and robbed us and took all our stuff and everything and took our women and stuff. That was wrong. He said, if you go over there and do the same thing they did, that would be wrong. And you know what Bill Hawks told him? He said, look. Some he said, and that would be wrong. He said, you want to do what's right. Bill Hawks told him, so you know, sometimes in this world, it takes two wrongs to make a right. And I said that to say yep. this. <laughs> you know, look, when you're dealing with what we, what I, to, what I keep stressing to you, survivor of the fittest is the is the law that rules this country, and it's a basic principle. It, it rules the world. Thank you. And the thing is, is this, what happened is a lot of black people, especially in America, don't know that during the negotiations to free Zimbabwe from the colonialists, Wilson Powell said that they were going to buy all of the land of those white farmers and give it to the blacks that didn't have land. And the thing is, that was one of the, the that was one of the uh, points in that negotiation. And after they got after they got Mugabe in 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 office, and they found out that hey, look, we got everything settled here now. They reneged on making sure that blacks would have uh, a place to go and farm and and own their land. Because you know, and I know that land is the basis for all industry and manufacturing and everything else. That's that's the seat of power if you're a group of people. And the thing is, right. they reneged. So now, all of a sudden, whites, even with Mugabe taking back all of that land, still own about sixty-five to seventy percent of all of the land in Zimbabwe. And Mugabe is just following up on what was negotiated during that peace accord that they settled with the Western powers. But now Mugabe is a bad person. But the thing is, now if the Indians come back and say, look, we want our land back in America, we say the Indians would be wrong, you know, because the thing is, white supremacy always is able to promote their good side and not show their bad side. And I'm going to flip over into 
blacks here. The thing is, is we're gonna have to we're gonna have to nail down. Maybe we can do it this week. Nail down well, a definition of white supremacy. Let, let me let me give you my, let me give you an example. Like in my my case with DC, I'm black. That the squatter that was in my house was black, and the judge was yeah. black. Okay, the the marshals at the courthouse black. So what? So I couldn't say it was white supremacy. So I'm sure looking you at can. you know what in order how could I? Easy because See, look the, 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 look, black, the black politicians the judge is black. The, right. You know what? That was a, an internal squabble, but you know, look, you lived in D.C. No, no, well, hold Who on, but I'm looking at it. Like, oh, no, now, here's what I was looking at now. I was, because I don't, I don't like, I believe that in the, in the United States, now this is what I believe, that if it's your house, you have a right to tell a person, leave. You shouldn't have to go off yeah. to, these, to, to, to get them out. But you do. Yeah. Okay. So I I got to learn the law, but then I looked at the political side of it. I said, you know what? Maybe if I can get start an organization and get some people together, and then we can bankroll people around the table. But I, I couldn't organize enough people to start that. That's why I went rural, because in a rural situation, I can get the mayor, and you know, let's go fishing or something. I can get things done politically in a time, like, for instance, what, what Pleasant's doing with Pembroke, Illinois. It's a lot easier to do things. So it wasn't a matter of primacy because all the elements I was dealing with was black folk from the, the, the government agencies in D.C., black folk, judge, black, house of black, I'm black. So it wasn't a matter of whites now. Who the person that that bankrolls the mayor in the office and picks these county agencies and helps people get elected? I mean, uh, selected judges. Those people are white, not not because there's a supremacy side on that because they only participated, but we've been absent in the the aspect of the system of getting a vested interest. And bankrolling all people in it. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, if we yes. would get more involved in the system, okay, where we have more control. That's what I'm saying. We need to work on a, uh, a definition of white supremacy is because, you know, you listen to Claude Anderson, he's got a definition. You listen to Umar Johnson, he's got a definition. And depending on the context you use that in, so in some cases, you're right. And in other places, you apply it, it's the wrong context, but the words are the same. Well, Brother L.A., what what you went through, and I went through something similar to what you went through, that's personal. That's an inner, that's an inner racial squabble. But we're talking Quite about, but it was brought into the system. The, the law yeah. says, the law says that I cannot physically remove a person from my house. That's right. The law right. All right. That's now, right. I don't like that law. Okay. So that's right. why I had to go to geographical areas where that law doesn't come into play. However, if I wanted to stick it out in D.C., Baltimore, Charlotte, Miami, Florida, Chicago, whatever, in places like that, 
I know in order for me to get that law off the books, I would have to get together with other people to bankroll the powers to, to get our people in there. That's, That's what I'm right. talking about. That's right. Yeah, yeah, but That's look, what I'm talking uh, about. you know what? What what you experienced is something that on a local level and a personal level you experienced based on a law that was passed. And like you said before, right. you have to put people in there that can change that law to make it what is satisfactory for you and other people that go through things like you and I went through. Because I went through something similar, but I'm look, I'm talking about something bigger here. You know, I'm not concentrated on the single tree. I'm concentrating on the forest. And the deal is is this. Those three principles that you named is all tactics that, look, is used. Now, look, on the white side, it could be classism. But you cannot say that there's not a racial component to whatever happens to black people in this country. And let me give you an example that you brought up in in a past podcast. The Louisiana bus boycott, you brought that up and you said that a bus company came in there and the people decided to boycott against it. Well, Well, what happened is when I read up on it, black folks controlled the transportation in that town. So what the white city council did, they outlawed the black bus company is operating in that town, and they bought in a white bus company. And you know what happened with that white bus company? They wanted to go in and segregate where you could sit and where you couldn't sit. Well, the thing is, going back to what you said, that was a power that they could put black bus owners and transportation companies out of business and bring in who they wanted because blacks controlled that transportation system in the city. That's when white supremacy can impose on you what those in those three terms that you name the politics to go in and change things. But there's no there's very few towns and cities in this country where you can bring in a bunch of black politicians and a mayor that can go in and change some city ordinance. It just can't be it can't be done without right. something you're, you're going on. A million percent right. It, it's only a handful of places. That we can pull this off. Perfect. Yeah, like Tampa, Oklahoma, where you live at. You can do that in right. Tampa, Oklahoma. Only, like say in, in a place like a D, let's say DC or Chicago. It, that's why I'm going back to that Joseph Kennedy thing. Interest. We, we had to look for. You know what? We out of time, then before the system boots us off. <laughs> look, we're going we're gonna to pick back up on this Thursday because we got to. We, we're going to go deeper on this with another topic. Yeah. Part that connects this, because what what we need to do is Thursday, and we need to, to knock down. We may we may do it tomorrow. Get a let, let's tie down a definition for white supremacy. We yeah, need we to can do, do that. that. And look, and uh, let me say this before you. We might get kicked off. So before we get kicked off, I'm ended now. Okay. Okay, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. 